You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, uh, my name's Josh, the pastor here. Big warm welcome to you, first time guests and visitors. Some of you, you're looking at me a little funny because normally we have a scripture reading um, where we'd all be standing and remaining standing for the reading of God's Word. We've got a longer section of text this morning. I'm going to be reading through it, and so we're just going to take our seats. I'll open us in prayer, and then we'll dive in. So if you don't have your Bibles already, go ahead, open them up. You need your Bible open here at Praxis. We're in Genesis 25. Um, there's some blue Bibles on a barrel by the door there if you want one for use. If you don't have one, that's our gift to you, um, but you could just Google in your phone to Genesis 25 and follow along. Um, I'll open us, and we'll get going. Father, I thank you for this time to reflect on the finished work of the cross, the glory that means uh, for us, and as we come in from the highs and lows of our week, whatever we come in with, we know that there's sufficient grace because of what was accomplished on the cross by your son. So we open the word this morning and study it. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would apply it to our hearts and minds, transform our lives, conform us more to the image of the Son, make us more your people, further us in this discipleship journey that you've called us into, and uh, we pray that Christ would be magnified, and we pray in his great name, amen. There, um, there's a, a saying that's been immortalized by the famous businessman, Andrew Carnegie. Some of you will have heard of him. It's about a 100-year-old saying that says this. It only takes three generations to go from shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves. Anyone heard that before? No? Okay. Well, here, I'll, I'll unpack what it means. It means that um, he, he was referring to a pattern that he observed whereby somebody starts a company, passes it on to the next generation, and by the third generation, it's, it's collapsed apart. Actually, stats prove this, too. Only about 3% of family businesses make it through the third generation. So the first generation works hard, labors to, to make this company kind of happen. And the second generation observes this hustle, grows up seeing this, the hard work and everything that went into it, and they continue it on. But, by, but certainly, things are easier there's a certain level of success and ease that's come with this. But then by the third generation, all they are seeing is the ease, things running. And this is often what leads to uh, the companies collapsing at this point. This is a well-known practice uh, or, or principle, pardon me, in the business world. And smart, multi-generational companies, they're working to try to figure out how to combat this. And, and, and I bring this up because the same pattern that we observe in family businesses we also observe in families of faith. Um, the theologian, D.A. Carson, he's a Canadian guy, um, fantastic, Don Carson, um, several years ago, he, he observed this pattern within families of faith. The first generation accepts the faith, the next generation assumes the faith, and the third generation denies the faith. And I'll give you just a really practical example that um, we could observe right here in our own city. Kelowna is about 120 years old which is four generations. And um, in that, there, there is two churches in this city that remain from 120 years ago. Only two, St. Andrew's Anglican, First United Church. Neither, neither of them um, thriving at the moment. You're probably more likely to hear a piano recital in them than the gospel being proclaimed both of these denominations have veered right out of historical orthodoxy. 
It only took three generations. Three generations. And we can observe this in our city, but you might look in your family and see the same thing. Maybe you look and, and you see this pattern happening. Some grandparents in the room. You might see this faith that was so near and dear to you that you passed on to your children, and now you're looking at your grandchildren going, what's happening? Why are they walking away from the faith? This pattern that we observe in businesses, it happens in families as well, and, and for many of the same reasons, the faith that transformed one generation, offered hope in the midst of their mess, results in the next generation experiencing some of the comforts that come from a transformed life. And then the third generation is more accustomed to those comforts than the one who gave them. And so this kind of all feeds into the topic we're going to be seeing in Genesis 25 this morning, which is this idea of succession of the faith. We're going to be looking at how faith is passed from one generation to another. How do we live out our faith in a way that ensures it will be carried forward by the generation after us. How our faith could be lived out in a way that it would impact generations after us, which should be our goal. Our text today, Genesis 25, it presents three generations, and it serves kind of as a bit of a case study, case study of what it looks like for faith to be played out generationally. I, I think this is why God has included this chapter in this book. So this is a book, Genesis written and given to the Israelites as they're about to take possession of the promised land. And I, I think it's in here, and these stories are, are, are telling a message of what it looks like to live your faith out in a good way, how to avoid some of the pitfalls, how to raise up generations of people afterwards who would continue to live their faith out. We're going to look at three generations of this family tree of Abraham's, beginning with the trunk of the family tree, so to speak, Abraham. The story of Abraham and Sarah is one that we've been looking at now for 13 chapters. I don't know how many weeks we've been in this, but a long time. We've been looking at the beginning of this faith journey for Abraham's family. There's been many fumbles. There's been some high points, many low points, many trials. But over and over, what we've seen is God's faithfulness to this family. We're now going to take a look at this final chapter of Abe's life. It begins here in verse 1. He says this, or the text says this, Abraham took another wife. So if you remember back in chapter 23, or yeah, 23, Sarah had died. And now it says, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Um, Abe here decides he's going to take another wife. Nothing wrong with this. If he had ditched Sarah to take on another wife, if he'd done what we're going to see Esau do next week and take an additional wife, there would be some problems. But his marriage covenant is dead. He said, till death do his part. His wife has passed on, and now he's taken on another wife. And, and he has some children with her as a 100-year-old man, which is crazy. But it says this, the sons of him were, um, are, or she bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Latushim, and Lemuin. It doesn't matter if I'm saying them right. You don't know. I don't know. Um, but he had a lot of sons. We know this. His children go on to father even more, and he becomes a great nation. We're, we're told this. Um, God promised him he was going to turn him into many nations, and he did. If you've been with us, though, he promised to do more than just give him uh, nations descending from him. He promised to give him some land. We've looked at this. Promised to give him a piece of land, and the boundaries that he described for this land match up with Eden, 
which we saw at the very beginning of this book. God promised to, to give them the chunk of land that he'd originally earmarked to dwell with his people. His, God's original plan was he'd come live on the earth with his people, dwell with his people. They would be his people. They would be their God. And so this was the promise that had been given to him. And it was this promise that you know, wasn't just that he was going to become many nations. This promise was going to come through one of his children, the child Isaac. And so this is why we read in verse 5, it says, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But the sons of his concubines, he, he gave gifts. While he was still living, he sent them away from Isaac eastward um, to the east country. He has many sons. The promise is going to come through Isaac, so he sends them away eastward. This was the direction we've seen many times used in Genesis already to describe those who are outside of the covenant of God. And so by sending them east, he's saying, you're not the covenant people because the covenant's going to come through Isaac. Interesting. This is the final chapter of Isaac or of, of Abraham, the last thing that we read about him before he dies. And there's a couple things here. As we're thinking generationally, how does faith pass generationally? There's a couple noteworthy examples that Abraham does that I think leave a strong spiritual legacy for the generations after them. The first is that he models obedience with his life. We, we've seen this in the readings we've done so far. Abraham walks his faith out in front of Isaac, his strengths and his weaknesses. Um, he, he, he's trying to obey God's command. He's trying to do this in front of Isaac. Um, he hasn't kept anything hidden in this process of what it looks like to follow Yahweh. There's a second thing that he, we see Abe doing, though, that I think is quite noteworthy, is that he sets his son up for obedience. We see this in the text we just read. Um, he, first off, he removes some obstacles that could have stood in the way of Isaac's obedience. He, he sends these other children away. He's trying to set the next generation up for success. Um, he does this additionally by I, giving him an, an inheritance. We read about that. He gets the full inheritance. The Bible speaks highly of parents who leave inheritances for our children. That's getting increasingly hard today. But Proverbs says a wise man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Abraham's doing this. Um, third thing, though, and we saw this in our text last week, is that Abraham tries to find a good spouse for his daughter, or his son, pardon me, a good daughter for his son Isaac. I'm tripping over my words. Now, we kind of... We kind of scoff at this idea of arranged marriages. If you were with us last week, we heard about that. We kind of like poo-poo on that idea of arranged marriages. But I, I have some friends in India who, are, who are, have arranged marriages, and they're very actually grateful for them because there's something that can happen there where your, your parents who are maybe a little bit further on in their wisdom journey, know some things to look out for, can help set up a spouse that will serve you well that will complement you well, that has some patterns, that has learned some things from a strong family. So, you know, you can have a successful marriage because marriage is about more than just our own personal gratification and happiness. Marriage is something created by God to honor him with. And a good spouse can either help you honor the Lord or severely hamper you honoring the Lord. So he sets his son Isaac up for success in finding a, a, a good wife in Rebecca. But the third thing that he does in a way that leaves a legacy is this. He dies well. 
He dies well. It's simply this. He died in a way that puts his faith on display. And we need more people to be doing this, to pass in a way that puts a bow on their life rather than takes it, everything that they've lived the rest of their life for apart. How we finish the race matters. When we die clinging to this life rather than embracing the one to come, I think sometimes it testifies to where, what our heart really wants. When we're, when we're just after all of this stuff here and sad because it's all going to be gone, it, it testifies to those after us of what our hope was truly in. For those who are part of the family of faith, death offers us the opportunity to be reconciled to our creator. Death offers us an opportunity to be free from the curse of sin. It offers us the opportunity to fully partake of the life that Christ died to give us. It provides an opportunity for our hope to be put on display for the generation after us. And, and Christianity, this faith, it offers a hope that no other religion in the world does. And so we should die differently than those around us. This promise that we see, um, you know, I'll, I'll just pause for a second because I, I want to be clear. I mean, there's sadness in death. There's sadness for those left behind. And I'm sure as you pass, there's a sadness. But there's, there's a joy in that as well. First Thessalonians 4, it says that we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We're not to grieve like that. We need to be marked by something different. We see this in Abraham as he passes. The promise that began in the garden, if you remember, sin came in, and then God promised that a, a snake crusher would come, one who would defeat Satan, sin, and death. Promised it would come. That promise had been passed down to Abraham, and it was promised that it was going to come through Isaac. He has this hope. And Abe believed, he believed in these promises, and it was, he had hope that this would come true even after he died. He had hope. I'll say this, he had hoped that he could be resurrected even after he died. And we know this because if you were with us when we looked at the sacrifice of Isaac, it said in Hebrews 11 that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac up from the dead after he had died. He has a hope in salvation. He has a hope in these promises. His hope is in this resurrection. And how do we know? Because he was buried because he was buried, and I want to unpack that. I'll get a little nerdy with you for a minute. <coughs> <coughs> Burial is uh, the traditional practice of Christianity and Judaism. That's where um, this idea comes from. Cremation is historically more of a pagan practice. Historically, um, burying the body of a deceased one was associated with those who believed in God, and there's a few reasons for this. First... Um, they buried the body because they believed the body was the property of God, and so they returned it back to God in the way they'd received it. This was why they buried their dead. But secondly, they buried their dead because it communicated a belief that our bodies were going to be raised from the dead, our bodies, not just our spirits. Because God's design was for us to have a body and soul, the Bible says we're going to receive our bodies back. That was his original design, that we would have a body and a soul. So when we die now, um, the scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. Our spirit goes and is with Christ. When he returns one day, we will be reconciled 
to our bodies. When Jesus returns, Satan, sin, and death are done away from, we will receive our glorified bodies back, free from all the effects of sin and the junk and whatever weird body part you have. All of that will be taken care of. We'll have amazing resurrected bodies. And they believed this so much that the language of the New Testament was when, whenever somebody died, they didn't call them dead. They actually described them as being asleep. They never referred to them as dead, rather sleeping because their bodies are waiting to be resurrected. And so this is why, historically, burial is a Christian practice. Now, does this mean that if you're cremated, you won't be resurrected? No. Okay, the same way Christians who are eaten by sharks or fall into wood chippers or whatever might happen, God can resurrect these parts. Sorry, I got a little Tarantino on us there. Um, but there is something very powerful in this practice of laying our bodies down in trust that the Lord will resurrect them. Abraham here is modeling this, and this is a very distinct practice at this time. The way he dies and the way he is buried testifies two generations after him of his hope. Take a look at uh, verse 9 with me here. It says this, Isaac and Ishmael, so pardon me, uh, we'll go back to 7. These are the, the days and years of Abraham's life, 175. He breathed his last, died in a good old age. Yeah, that's a good old age. An old man full of years. Yes, that's a full quiver of years, and he was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Aphon, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There he was buried with Sarah, his wife. <clears throat> this place here, this cave, you can actually still go visit today. It's about 40 kilometers outside of Jerusalem. It's the second most holy site within um, Judaism. It was preserved by Jews. Um, then after that, it was preserved by Christians until the Crusades when the Muslims took it over. But Muslims consider Abraham their father too, so they preserved this site. You can still go see it. Um, interestingly, this site where Abraham was buried within Jewish tradition and mythology is considered the place where the gate to the Garden of Eden was. So if that's the case here, Abe being buried, it's kind of like he, he, he's, he's hoping that he's going to be like first in line. He bought the line hopper pass for Disneyland. He's hoping he's going to be the first guy into this land that God promised to give him one day. He's buried there. His wife's buried there. Isaac and Rebekah go on to be buried there. Jacob, their son, gets his bones get brought up from Egypt and put in that same tomb. If you've read to the end of Genesis, chapter 50, you'll remember Joseph. He dies in Egypt in captivity, but he makes them promise that his bones would be brought back up to this place. Why? Because he believed he was going to be resurrected. There was something to this. They had hope. And burial was a testimony to their belief in God's promises. Now, I bring this all up because there is some in this room who you're further along in your discipleship journey and you're closer to the end of your race than others. And I think this opening chapter of 25 challenges us to consider how we will live out our last days. How will you live out your last days in a way that will testify of the hope you have Scream to the next generation of the hope you have. How can your dying act provide an opportunity for you to testify to your faith? How can, 
How can you spend your final years? How will I be able to spend my final years? This is a question for all of us. How can we end in a way that will pass the baton of faith to the next generation? Worth consideration. Faith is more than just taught. In many ways, it's caught. It's caught from those before us who lived it in a way that was contagious to the generations after, who testified to it and then passed that baton on to those who would come after. And as we read on, we're going to see what it looked like for this, this faith baton to be passed on um, to the generation after Abe into this um, child of his, Isaac. We'll read from verse 19. It says this, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Um, he, uh, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac, Rebekah, uh, or sorry, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And he prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, if you've been with us earlier on, you'll remember how Isaac's mom was barren. He, he's remembering how God has come through for his mother and father. He's heard the stories. He's raised on a steady diet of stories of God's faithfulness, and now he believes it. He believes it so much that he's practicing it because his parents did. If you remember, you know, he doesn't go take a, a concubine because his wife's barren. He goes straight to the Lord. He, he, he learns the lesson that took Abraham a lot of years to learn, Right? He learns from his father's faith, and in the same way, we can't pass on money we don't have. We can't pass on faith that we don't have. Through the way he lived here, Abe has passed on faith to Isaac, which is important because our faith journey matters more than just for our own lives. It matters for those who will come after us. This is why, as parents, we need to share things God's teaching us, the situations he's training us through, good and bad, even if you look dumb in the middle of it. Like, we've read so many stories of Abe's stupidity. Isaac's learned from it. That's why he didn't do the same thing his dad did there. He repeats some of his mistakes, but some of them he learns from. I think it's because his dad's actually telling him. And so, as parents, we need to share moments that God's been training foolishness out of us because chances are your kids are going to inherit your foolishness. They need to learn those lessons. We need to teach them the lessons that took us years to learn. Isaac's skipping. He's skipping ahead in the line, thanks to his daddy. Some parents in the room. Might be worth thinking, what lessons is our Heavenly Father teaching us? What, what can we do to share those with our kids? How could we help them get a little further ahead in the line? Maybe what, what folly are we repeating that we saw our parents doing? We need to share these stories, not hide them. It helps our kids. To the children in the room, that's everyone. What lessons did you see your parents learning as you look back? What, what hard struggles did they go through? How can you learn from those? We can learn from both successes but also failures. We have to. As we read on, we're going to see there, there's some lessons they learned, but there's also some they haven't. Take a look at verse 22. 
says, so Rebecca went to, actually this is back 21, so the Lord gave Rebecca a child after he, um, Isaac prayed. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it's this way in my womb, what's happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Noteworthy, okay, she doesn't scoff like Sarah did. Look at how she responds. So the Lord says to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And um, um, yeah, it's, it's, I'll keep reading here. So when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called him Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding his brother's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Isaac or Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So this starts, again, Sarah not falling into, or, or Rebekah not falling into the pattern of Sarah, instead going directly to the Lord. And when the Lord tells her what's going to happen, she doesn't laugh. She, she receives it. God tells her, Two nations are in your womb, two peoples, and this actually goes on to be true. Two nations did come from her, just as Isaac and Ishmael um, both were made great nations, but one warred against the other. We're going to see this pattern now continue on, kind of like a, a consequence in some ways, kind of a pattern that began with Abraham and um, Sarah's disobedience and, and having a child through Hagar. Now we're seeing that sin passed down. And there's two children that are going to be warring against each other the same way Isaac and Ishmael were. God says that one is going to be greater than the other. And he's not just simply predicting what will come to pass. He's actually revealing his sovereign will in election. God elected or, or chose, if you will, one before he was born. He says it. He decides to bless one, and he creates a division between the chosen one and the other. God chose one of them before he was born. Hebrews picks up on this, or Romans 9 picks up on this, rather. It says, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good, either, nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, meaning the fact that he chooses people before they're born, not because of works, but because of his own will, he who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, not because he'd done anything, just because God chose. He chose one, he didn't choose the other. And I know that's a tough egg, but it's the Bible. It's saying it. It's taking credit. God's saying, I chose one, I didn't choose the other. The Bible's saying it, you need to do something with it. This word, actually, election that we see here, it, it occurs seven other times in the New Testament in the same context. This idea occurs Dozens and dozens and dozens of times front to back throughout the scripture. We've talked about it at length before, but it comes up here. If you want to go study it more on your own, you can go read all of Romans 9. You could go read Ephesians 1 and 2 this week. It will unpack this idea a little more. But what we find out is before she gave birth, she was told there was two babies in her womb. One would be stronger than the other. The older would serve the younger because God determined it. Babies pop out and they give them names. The first one's called Esau. It means hairy, like literally, not like hairy, H-A-R-R-Y, like hairy, you got some body hair, man. Because when he popped out, he was covered in hair. He looked like an animal. Some commentators say um, 
they called him Harry not just because he looked like an animal, but because he was kind of a wild beast of a man. He had a ton of passion. He was a bit of a manimal. Jacob, it means he who takes by the heel, because he came out like a barrel of monkeys holding his brother's leg. Now, it's a really interesting way of naming children. Let's just be honest. You're just calling it like you see it. And if we did that, our kids probably have some creative names, Screamy, Fat Cheeks. I don't know what the babies would be called. But it's not really how we do things today. Typically, what we do with names is we'll, we'll give them something that we hope they become, right? Kind of a prophetic name over them. I named my daughter Temperance because I hoped she would be more temperate than I am. It's kind of a prophetic name, but ironically, these names, they're calling it like they see it, but these names end up being um, quite prophetic as well. Esau becomes a passionate, wild manimal given to his carnal cravings. Jacob becomes a heel-grabbing overreacher who tries to overtake his brother, which we're going to see in coming weeks. The boys grew up. Esau was a skillful hunter man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Esau is an outdoorsman. It's telling us hunting, fishing, camouflage, bass pro hat, truck driving, meat-eating Joe Rogan podcast on in his 80s Chevy, that kind of guy. Jacob's a little different, less of an outdoorsman, more of an indoorsman. And this actually leads us into the error that we see them not learning from their parents. Look at verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. He went hunting with him and they cooked meat. Rebekah loved Jacob. They, they learned some good lessons from their parents, but there's some they didn't and they're repeating. This idea of favoritism. There's echoes here in the story of Isaac and Ishmael, if you remember back to that. Remember how Isaac here is just the, the center of both Abraham and Sarah's world. You remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how Abraham called him his son, his only son, in whom he delights. He's the center of his world. Isaac was the favorite child. And now Isaac is playing favorites with his own children. God told them one would be stronger than the other, and they, they each got their money on a different child. Isaac's saying, I like Esau because he kills animals with me. Rebecca's saying, I like Jacob because he makes quilts with me. And rather than bringing these two children together and uniting them, instead they're playing favorites, they're dividing them. And if you want to leave a strong family legacy, you can't play faves. Some of you, you know this. You can't play faves. This starts with them in childhood. It goes on into the future, and as we work our way through Genesis, we're going to see these two brothers battle it out. There's a tension that starts right in the home as children. If you want to leave a good legacy, you can't play favorites. How many here, you felt like um, your sibling was favored more than you? Only a couple? You are... For the three in the room, okay, you know how terrible this feels. You've probably experienced it, its effects. You can't control what's happened to you, but you need to learn from the mistake. You need to not carry that forward. How many of you here, you were the favored sibling? So it should be all but those three, right? And if you're an only child, your hand goes up, okay? You know... Being this favorite child, the object of your parents' hope, sometimes feels like an impossible burden. 
Being the center of your parents' universe is unbearable. That's because kids aren't designed to be gods. They're not designed to be the center of the universe. They're not supposed to be our everythings. Only God can be that. Now, parents, you need to hear this. Every parent in the room, your kids need to know they aren't the center of the universe. Yeah, that is so important. I will say it again. Your kids need to know they're not the center of the universe. Not only will the rest of the world thank you, your kids probably will one day as well. Because that's an impossible burden. Our kids need to actually see this. They need to see God being the center of our universe. They need to know our hope is in God, not in them. They need to see parents whose greatest hope is in the kingdom God is going to bring one day, not in whatever imaginary kingdom we've tried to place on them and set them up to, to accomplish. It's this failed lesson that I think unfortunately leads into the next part of our story this third generation. I said at the beginning this. I said, the first generation accepts the faith. The next generation assumes the faith. The third generation denies the faith. So the first generation, it learns things the hard way. The second, they get the benefits of all that their parents had accomplished. The third grow up with all of these benefits. They're not often in contact with the struggle and they end up abandoning the faith. They stop realizing what they have has come as a result of the faith, and instead they just embrace the gifts rather than the gift giver. Take a look at this last generational story with me. Um, verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field. He was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Jacob said, well, sell me your birthright now then. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, then swear it to me now. So he swore to him, sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went in his way. And Esau despised his birthright. So Esau comes in, hungry after a long day of work in the field, and he's a bit dramatic He's impulsive. He's over-exaggerating. I'm going to die. You know, I remember doing this as a kid. I'm dying of thirst. I'm starving. My mom would like sit me down and make me watch a World Vision commercial, tell me about the children in Africa, right? But in the moment, all I could think about was my hunger and my craving. And this is a bit what Esau's like. He's, he's a boy. This is what it's telling us. He's indulgent, given to his carnal cravings. It's in his name. He's a hairy beast. He's a manimal. All he can think about is his physical appetites. The problem is we are a lot more than physical. We're not just physical. Culture will tell us we are. Say we're we're the great-great-grandbabies of some type of monkey. And so we can justify our carnality because we're animals, and that's what animals do. They give in to their cravings. So you can devour what you want, sleep with whomever you want, go wherever you want, because at the core of your being, you're animalistic, and you need to heed these urges. This is how you evolutionarily got here. Except that's a pile of crap. This isn't what Genesis tells us. It says we were created differently than beasts. God formed us with his own hands. You can go back and listen to this in our second and third week. God yasarred us, formed us with his own hands the way a potter makes a clay pot into something. He did went way further than that, though. He breathed his spirit into us. And so we're material, we're physical, but we're also spiritual. And it's this spirit within us that separates us from the animals. And so we should behave different than an animal. 
We're not descendants of animals. We're descendants of God. We behave differently. And our culture is trying to sell us a big fat lie that you're just a highly evolved animal who evolved from giving into your cranks, cravings. Pardon me. Christianity teaches that the core of your being is not your desires, but your spirit. And so, just kind of as a segue, actually a, a really powerful practice, a way of exercising this, strengthening that muscle so that we don't just give in to our cravings, is fasting. Fasting is a way of saying, I am not just material. Man should, does not just live by bread alone, but by every word that just proceeds from the mouth of God. It's a way of flexing that muscle, strengthening ourselves so we don't become like Esau, just a hairy beast that gives in to all of our cravings like some highly formed animal, which we're not. Esau has denied this spiritual aspect of himself. He, he's acting carnally out of this belief that his desires are at the core of who he is, and if he wants it, he has to have it. And this leads him to, to him making a horrific exchange, giving up his birthright. This, this birthright, it's an interesting concept for us, but the firstborn child would have got a double portion of whatever inheritance was to be passed down to the children. If you remember, what's that inheritance he's going to inherit from Abraham? The land. The wealth, the spiritual lineage, Jesus descending, literally the savior of the world coming one day. He gives that up for stew. Okay, and stew's good, right? Especially like the more meat, the better. But no stew is that good. He gave up spiritual blessings for some momentary pleasure. He forsook his spirituality for carnality. He bowed to his cravings, and he let them govern them. And, and Hebrews 12 says this. It, it unpacks this story of, of Esau this way. It says, see to it that none of us is sexually unmoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Look at it here. It equates sexual immorality to Esau's action of having stew. Why? Because both are an indulgence in, in, in our carnal cravings. It's important that we see this. The way that many people act their sexuality out is like that of a beast, under the belief that if they want to, they must do it. They run around like feral bulls. If I feel like sleeping with them, I should. If I have this desire, I should satisfy it. If I desire it, it's natural, so I should do it. Do you see what it is, though? It's the belief that at the core of your being, you're an animal, not a spirit. I know the Bible says this about sex and sexuality, but I feel this, and I can't be disingenuous to myself. Well, you're denying actually who you are. When we buy into this way of thinking, we buy into the idea at the core of, we, of who we are, we're just animals, we're the descendants of animals, so we can behave like them, but the Bible says we're made in the image of God, and so we need to behave differently. We are spiritual at the core of who we are, because God breathed his spirit into us. So we're to rule over this carnality by the spirit of God within us. Esau, though, he's a man of the moment. He didn't think long-term. His only 
thinking was through his immediate senses, and it ended up losing him his birthright. He's a man of base physical appetites, the opposite of a man of faith. Ruled by his wants and his desires, his God is his gut. We see God saving Abraham from godlessness, coming to faith, Isaac carrying on this faith, and now we see Esau forsaking it, falling right back into godlessness, denying the idea that he's actually a spirit at the core of his being and, and embracing this idea that he's an animal. And Hebrews tells us that scripture that was up there, and a little later on he realizes this horrible mistake, but it's too late. He's forsook the blessing, and now he's lost it. And if you're here and you're a Christian in the room, we'll just put this back up. You are somewhere on this cycle. You're somewhere. Where? If, if we're thinking through how do we pass faith on to the generations, next generation, we need to know where we're at. Furthermore, we need to know how we could actively engage in the season we're in. If you're in that third generation where you're at risk of denying it, you need to recognize that at the core of who you are is spirit. You need to avoid that carnality. If you're in that middle generation, maybe you've come from some folks who passed on a good legacy to you. You need to realize that the, the wrestle they went through to get that, or maybe your great-great-great-great-granddaddy went through to earn that for you. There's a responsibility we need to engage in here, and we need to recognize the places where we might be at risk of trading eternity for the temporal, like Esau selling over a birthright for something that's far too fleeting. We need, to, we need to know this because how we live our faith out matters for ourselves, but also in the lives of the kids who will come after us and how they live theirs out. And so to the parents in the room, I ask something I've been thinking about this week, which is how can we more actively engage in the discipleship of our children? How can we more actively engage in that? There's grandparents in the room. You could ask yourself, how do I help my kids do this well? How could I continue to pour into my kids? How do I live my last days in a way that testifies to a greater hope, not just that I finally get to go and golf more and buy more toys and spend all of my time on myself? That might be the error of Esau. How do we live our lives for the generation after us? How can we testify to those who will come after us of the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ? And I want to I talk to the men specifically in the room here. We've talked about this before. Fathers have a very special responsibility. They bear a very special weight. Actually, statistically speaking, if the father comes to faith, the rest of the household will. The most likely way the next generation is going to continue on the face is if the dad takes his faith seriously. And I need, we all need to hear this if you're a man in the room. The world and the church needs more men who are leading their home and thinking generationally. This is how the lives of our children will be transformed. This is how this city will be transformed. 
This is how our family generation will be transformed. This is how the world's going to be transformed. Dads are absolutely vital in stopping the breakdown of faith in the family lines that we come from in our society. And there is a spiritual war against dads. There's a spiritual war against men. Just in general, culture calls all masculinity toxic. Satan has declared war on masculinity. Why? Because God created it. He's attacking everything God's made. Can masculinity be toxic? Oh yeah, so can femininity. Because why? Because humanity's toxic and we need to be saved by Jesus. But once we are, we need to take on this mantle of what it looks like to be a biblical man. Biblical masculinity is actually desperately needed. And God has put a burden squarely on the, sh the, the shoulders of men that they need to pick up. We need to stop heeding the cultural cues whereby men shirk all of their responsibility and leave it to women. Become that dopey version of men that TV tells us we are. Men need to stop leaving the spiritual discipleship of their children to the church. Men need to stop leaving the child rearing of our kids solely to our wives. They're our helpers, not our servants. We need to stop handing the education of our children over to the government, which is opposed to God. And we need to not give in to the cultural siren call to live our lives just for ourselves and our own lame pleasure pursuits. Our world needs men, anatomical men, not geldings. The world needs stallions. We need men to stop abdicating responsibility and instead activate into responsibility in their homes and also in this church. To be frank, we need more men in this church to step up, to set an example for the generations to come, to show the men who are coming after you what a man is, that a man leads, that a man shoulders responsibilities. And I'm going to say this, if, if Praxis is home, you're a man here and you're not serving it's time to stop acting like boys letting the women wait on us and be men and step up and lead the women and children. There is no shortage of opportunities in this church, but there is a shortage of men stepping forward. And if you are here and you're a man and you're not serving, I want to just say this. Either step up or please find somewhere else to attend. Okay, we're running out of chairs. We're running out of chairs. Go find another seat to warm. And I say that, okay, because my job is not to pack these chairs with people. My job that I'm going to be judged for is presenting you to mature in Christ. You are not mature in Christ if you're not serving in your church. You're a taker. So we are possessed by this vision of seeing Praxis grow into a church that will be here for generations to come so that 120 years from now, Praxis is still here. Okay, that's gonna involve, yes, men stepping up, but all of us. We're possessed by this vision of seeing every single person in this valley with a near shot of gospel proclamation again. That's gonna involve men stepping up. And just to be very practical on where you could serve, right now, in the back, in kids, we need more men. Right now in youth, we, we desperately need more men to step forward and lead. And 
if you're, if you're a man here and you have any aspiration to ministry, can I just suggest that's the first place to start? We need help. Why? Okay, I'm not, I'm not trying to harp on us. I want to call us forward in faith. I want us to go, how does this faith that we claim to have get passed on to the next generation? It's going to involve us being active.